In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Lloyd Greif joins us this week on Money Tales. After a decade-long investment banking career at Sutron Company, Lloyd left to start his own boutique investment bank, Greif & Company. Some people would be skittish to make this leap, not Lloyd. As he tells us, he was a top producer firm-wide. As the leading rainmaker within the organization, he was routinely generating 40 to 60% of the total revenue for their division. Lloyd had the relationships, contacts, and chutzpah to know that the success he had at Sutro would carry over, even if he was getting Greif and company started during a recession. Lloyd's extreme work ethic is legendary, and he had no doubts that he would pull off the new venture. Decades later, Lloyd is still leading Greif and company, which has the reputation as the Entrepreneur's Investment Bank. In 1997, Shortly after launching his business, Lloyd founded the Lloyd Greif Center for Entrepreneurial Studies at USC's Marshall School of Business. The Greif Entrepreneurship Center is consistently ranked among the top 10 entrepreneurial study centers in the world. As you'll hear in our conversation, Lloyd considers the gift to fund the center a life-changing, transformative event because it was all about creating future generations of entrepreneurs. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics that Lloyd hits on in this conversation. First, how you truly learn the value of a dollar when you don't have any money. Second, how apprenticeships are more than just learning a trade. They're all about building your reputation. And third, how important it is after hitting early career success to not use credit cards to live beyond your means. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with Lloyd Greif. Hi, Money Tales listeners. We are really excited for this conversation today with our guest. Before I get there, how are you, Sandy? I'm doing great, Cami. I had a client conversation earlier today with a couple I've been working with, they have a startup company that they're really excited about and they want to do some asset transfer planning around it, which is really fun and exciting. But because the ultimate value of this company is unknown, they have a lot of concerns about how much to be transferring into different vehicles like trusts for the benefit of their young children. They don't want to give too much, but they don't want to give Not enough. It's the Goldilocks situation. We had a lot of conversation about what their 
true goals are, what their concerns are, how to best mitigate those concerns and develop a plan that works really well for them in a period of complete uncertainty. Wow. That sounds challenging, but also such important questions to ask. A lot of important questions. And fortunately, all of the strategies we were looking at were things that they could layer in over time as more and more information about the company and its success comes to life. What an interesting topic for us because our guest knows something about entrepreneurship and startups. Lloyd Greif, welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you, Cammie. Thank you, Sandy. Happy to be here. Would you introduce yourself and provide a couple pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that really impacted the person you are today? Happy to do so. I'm Lloyd Greif. I'm president and CEO of Greif & Company, a Los Angeles-based independent investment bank. But that's not where my life started. My life started quite some time ago. I'm the son of Holocaust survivors. My dad was in the Auschwitz and Dora Nordhausen concentration camps during World War II. My mom evaded capture barely during that period of time. They lost everything in the war. My father lost his parents and 10 siblings. My mom fared better in that regard, but almost lost her husband. And when they came to the U.S. in 1947, they came basically penniless. Their family had lost everything during the war and they had to start all over again. And my dad was an entrepreneur. He set up a business in DTLA, downtown L.A., called Paris Handbag Manufacturing Company. Unfortunately, his health never fully recovered from the Holocaust, and he died when I was six years old. I'm a product primarily of a single-parent household. I grew up in Santa Monica in a one-bedroom apartment. My mom slept on a pull-out couch in the living room. My older brother and I shared a bedroom. So I would not say that we grew up with any degree of wealth. And I wouldn't be where I am today were it not for education. Education, I found to be the great equalizer in life, primarily the public education system. I went through the public schools in Santa Monica School District. And when I graduated high school, went to UCLA, another public university, as an undergrad. Through all three of my degrees, including an MBA at USC and a JD at Loyola Law School, I worked full-time while attending school full-time. So certainly learned the value of a dollar that way because I didn't grow up with any dollars when I was a kid. And I also learned the value of working for a wage. I worked in high school. I had a paper route, and then I worked at a gas station. And I was second male lead as Prospero and Shakespeare as The Tempest in high school. And rehearsals ran long one evening, and I was late to the gas station. And then when I arrived, the attendant I was supposed to leave had already left, and this owner was there, and he fired me. That's the only job I'm happy to say I've been fired from. And that certainly tossed me some money back then, but it also taught me the lesson of focus on doing your job and being there when you're supposed to be there and fulfilling your, even if in this case, school got on the way. And fortunately, it didn't change my lifestyle of living at home. But from that point on, when I moved out, and I did when I turned 18, struck out on my own, put a roof over my own head and pay my way through school, I was sure I wasn't going to get fired from that point on because I needed that job in order to eat. I was doing things like working at Ralph's Grocery Company, working midnight to nine and running the morning crew and take a half hour lunch, get off at 8.30, go home, shower, go to school at 10, get out at five, go home, eat dinner, go to sleep, get up at 11. I didn't need to sleep much back then. Didn't need to study much back then to get good grades. Get up 11, go back to work at midnight and carry on for another day. And I could do that, maintain my sanity so long as one of my two days off was a weekend. So I had no work and I had no school. But when I graduated with my MBA, that allowed me to break the retail mold where I'd been at Browse for six years and 
worked my way from a box boy to an assistant store manager. That allowed me to get into management consulting at two troughs. From there, I got recruited into investment banking at Sutro. And while I was at two troughs and while I was at Sutro, I got my third degree. Again, working full-time, this time as a professional, not as a supermarket clerk. And that was at Loyola Law School. And that allowed me to embark on yet another career. That whole part of my life that I go out of line when I joined Sutro and Company as an investment banker was one phase that was pivotal in terms of formative. When I was an investment banker at Sutro, I learned the trade, learned my apprenticeship, and I resigned Sutro to launch Rifen Company. I would say that was the second pivotal moment because then I became a full-fledged entrepreneur. And that was three decades ago. And that certainly was a life-changing event because instead of worrying about my paycheck, I had to worry about everybody else's paycheck and make payroll every two weeks. So that was 1992. And I would say the third pivotal kind of a life-changing event was when Renee and I, my wife, founded the Lloyd Greif Center for Entrepreneurial Studies at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. And that was momentous as well. Oh, my goodness, Lloyd. What a story. Thank you for that introduction. And you've come from a lot of pain and also a lot of hard work. And I really appreciate you sharing so much with us. Would you just go back in time as this young boy in Santa Monica and share with us, when did money start having meaning to you? Well, we didn't have any. Uh, There wasn't any money for anything other than necessities. It was a frugal upbringing was for sure. One of the things I learned to do was clean my plate. That's a habit I unfortunately still have to this day. <laughs> you seem very fit. Doesn't seem like a problem. It would be better if I left the food on the plate nowadays. But I think that's the Holocaust experience of my mom, where she didn't know where her next meal was going to come when she's living in the French countryside in Barnes during this period of evading capture. You learn the value of the dollar when you don't have it and clearly didn't have it. There was a role model, my uncle, my uncle Robert Ernst, lived in a fancy house in Brentwood and had a couple of entrepreneurial ventures of his own. He had two different chemical plants, Textilon and Farbes. And so when I would sometimes spend time, because he was my mother's brother at his home, I could see the difference between what we had and what we didn't have. And that was something that showed me a whole different world and frankly, something to aspire to have. You became focused on achieving a lifestyle that was more like your uncle. Yes, I certainly didn't want to hang out in a one-bedroom apartment with my mom and my brother for any longer than I had to. The other thing about Uncle Robert, and also one of my store managers, Frank Woodward, Uncle Robert was certainly all about education. He was a scientist. He ended up being a professor at the University of California in Irvine, biochemist, brilliant man, a genius, and an excellent role model from that standpoint. And then there was one of my store managers at Browse, someone by the name of Frank Woodward, who was the one who told me about the MBA program at USC. I was a UCLA student, and that there was a scholarship that Ralph could nominate you for that would allow you to attend USC. Because it was one thing for me to pay my way through school, undergrad in a public school environment like UCLA, where the tuition was certainly much more reasonable and accessible. Another thing to go to a private school like USC and be able to afford the tuition there. And again, I paid my own ways. Those scholarships from Ralph were very helpful. And Ralph didn't pay for the scholarship they nominated me for, but I received courtesy of Hunt Wesson Foods one year and Pacific Indoor and Outdoor Advertising another year. And without those scholarships, no way I could have attended USC. So you're able to get all the way through your MBA on your own, no debt. It sounds like no student loans. Not for the MBA. And clearly having the MBA allowed me to unlock the door to money. The hot profession back then was management consulting, 
And so I went through the interview process and landed a job with two Schroffs at the time, as I indicated today, Deloitte. And that certainly allowed me to change my lifestyle. But I also had some other hard lessons yet to learn. I went from, when I was at Touche, I attended law school at night. And Loyola Law School here in Los Angeles is another private university. So any graduate school environment is more expensive than an undergraduate environment. And I did have to incur student loans in order to supplement my earnings at the time. enabled me to be able to get that degree. My wife did the same. She wasn't my wife at the time. I met her in law school, Renee, but she also incurred student loan debt, both of which we had once we left law school. And even while we're in the early years of our marriage, that we had to and did pay as it matured. Tell us about that time. You're married, have three degrees under your belt. You have this new wife. You both have some debt. You're ambitious. How are you learning about money at the time? And how are you and Renee talking about it? Well, when you grow up without money, you don't take it for granted. You don't have any sense of entitlement. And when you start to have money, I think you get attached to it. My wife actually taught me a lesson about money, which was interesting because she wasn't my wife at the time. We were dating. I'd like to take her to nice restaurants and buy her nice gifts. And at some point when we started living together, she found out or I let her know, I can't remember which, kind of one of these memories you block out, that I had run up quite a bill on my American Express card. American Express cards are great. And then they're also, what do you call it, double-edged sword. Yeah, you have to pay that bill off when it comes, don't you? You don't pay it off, which they're perfectly happy you don't pay it off because they're pretty lowered in interest rates. And I found myself mired in credit card debt. And Renee found out about it. So the first thing she said was, let's stop going to nice places and stop buying me nice things and pay down the debt. And so she was a great influence in that regard because that's what we did. Or that's what I did. Were you a person who budgeted at this time in life? Nope. Didn't budget. Despite the business school training, didn't have a personal budget. So if you're asking me, Tammy, did I live beyond my means? Yep. <laughs> yep, I live beyond my means. Until Renee came in. There's always a reckoning when you do that. Mm, judgment Day came. I shaped up before Renee shipped me out. <laughs> Good woman. Yeah, great woman. We've been married for 36 years. Served our 36th anniversary last September. We've been together for over four decades. Oh, so, congratulations. Wow. I would say I've done good on the mate selection side. Lloyd, tell us about starting Greif & Co. In 1992, I remember that year. That was a hard economy. Very difficult economy. Yeah, it was a contrarian move. It was a recession. I had built a successful career at Sutro and Company and risen from being an associate to vice chairman of the firm and one of the five people on the management committee that ran the firm, Sutro was the oldest investment bank in the West, went back to 1858. They were based in San Francisco. I was a senior executive in Los Angeles. And so I built my reputation. I mentioned, I referred to it earlier in our conversation as an apprenticeship. It was more than an apprenticeship. Certainly, I learned the trade, but I also built a reputation so that after Sutro had changed hands, it was becoming more bureaucratic, less entrepreneurial as a part of John Hancock Mutual Life Insurance. And I decided that it was time for me to spread my own wings. And 1992 might have seemed like a surprising time to do it. To me, it was a perfect time because competitors, because of the recession, were kind of like what's going on right now. They weren't hiring. They were laying off, contracting the size of their branch offices. And for Wall Street, they would be a branch office. And from my standpoint, particularly with my tie into entrepreneurship at the University of Southern California, I knew that this was a vibrant middle market economy, that Los Angeles wasn't going to fall into the ocean. California wasn't going to disappear. Back then, it was whatever numbers. It might have been the ninth largest economy. Today, it's the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world. I was making a bet on LA continuing to be the middle market capital of the world and an entrepreneurial hotbed. 
so I hung out my own shingle. And by then, by the way, Sandy, I was budgeting. And by the time I had budgeted that, hey, this is not OPM, other people's money. This was my money, Nene's money too, of course. At that point, we've been married for half a dozen years. I had calculated that I'd have enough money. I figured we'd break even within the first 12 months, but had enough money put away that I could keep the company in the lights on for 24 months, for two years. And I brought over two colleagues who had been vice presidents on my deal team at Sutro and brought them over at full compensation, full packages, and paid myself a penny every two weeks. So every payroll, I pay myself a penny. Why did I pay myself a penny? That was necessary in order to maintain health insurance. I had to be an employee. But it certainly made no sense to pay myself a salary <laughs> when the company was generating red ink. That 12 months, because of the recession, ended up taking more like 18 months wow. before we broke into the black. So we still had six months to spare, but went six months over my anticipated crossing the line into profitability. How were you talking about the business with Renee? Would you share some of the conversations you were having, especially as this time period expanded? Cammie, Renee has seen what I had done at Sutro and how successful I had become. I was their top producer firm-wide, so I was the leading rainmaker within the organization. And out of 25 investment bankers, I was routinely generating 40 to 60% of their revenues in the investment banking division. So I was a disproportionate producer. So from her standpoint, she encouraged me to do it. She said, you know what, you're betting on yourself. I can't think of a better bet for either one of us to make. I'll take care of the household. You don't worry about that. You just worry about your clients. That division of church and state has always worked in our household. She had been working as a lawyer. She gave up that practice to focus full-time on child rearing. In 1992, we would have had two children at that point. Our third arrived the following year. You had some runway when you started the business. You had some money set aside. You were confident because you've had so much success as an investment banker at Sutro, but you've never had your own business before. And it took a little bit longer than you initially thought. What was that like? What was going through your mind? I knew it was a gamble, but I'd gone through. So I went to USC and the reason Ralph's had a scholarship program there is because USC had a food industry management program. And when I went there, I discovered something I wasn't aware of, something called the entrepreneur program. USC has the oldest entrepreneurial studies program of any university in the world. They got in the entrepreneurial studies business in 1971, 72 was their first school year. And I was part of that seventh cohort in 1977-78 to go through that. And so that provided the role model of my, my uncle, my role model of my grandfather who had been an entrepreneur, my dad who had been an entrepreneur. And then going through the entrepreneur program itself and giving me some of the tools, felt I was capable of doing it. Immediately, there was a lot of news when I formed Brighton Company because I think I was well known within the local media and they, they knew of my proficiency in the investment banking field. And there was clients. I had an agreement with Sutra that I wouldn't raid any employees. I wouldn't try to take any business. And in return for which they compensated me for the remainder of that year that I left, I'd been Sutro's top producer in the last nine of the 10 years I was there, including the year when I resigned the first week of March. But I'd left business behind and I promised them I'd help close. But clients whose business had not yet gone to market, we did most merger and acquisition work, canceled their contract. They'd come to Sutro to have Lloyd Wright do their deal. That's why, primary reason why I put my name on the door so that they would know that Lloyd Wright was no longer vice chairman at Sutro. He was CEO of Wright and Company. And it was pretty clear signal that, that I wasn't there anymore. <laughs> So when those clients started knocking on the door and saying, hey, can you undertake our assignment and pick up where we left off, 
that told me that we were going to be fine. The reason it took 18 months, Sandy, was because things in the recession move slower. Buyers are more cautious. Credit's tight. The dollars don't flow as readily. But I was betting on myself, and I've always found that to be a good bet. And Renee was betting on me, too. So did I have any concerns? This is the deal business. So what I do for a living is primarily mergers and acquisitions, but also corporate financings. And you never know when a deal is going to close. There's all kinds of opportunities for deals to blow sky high. And if you're a good banker, you're doing everything you can to prevent that from happening. And so was there any assurance that Griffin Company would be a success? The one assurance there was was my track record at Sutro, and it was no reason to assume, other than the fact that we didn't do public offerings, which I did at Sutro. But in terms of private placements or mergers and acquisitions, I had all the tools that I needed, primarily me, my knowledge and my relationships and my contacts and my chutzpah to tell me that that success I had at Sutro would carry over. I don't think I ever doubted for a minute that we were going to make it. I'm wondering if you would tell us about the creation of the Lloyd Greif Center for Entrepreneurial Studies. How did you and Renee approach that endeavor? I'm the product of three universities, UCLA, USC, and Loyola. The university has always made the biggest difference in my life. USC. USC has the ties that bind. And I think it's got a much stronger alumni network than UCLA or Loyola. It was certainly helpful to me in doing deals, the entrepreneur program, I had joined Sutro in November of 81, and I graduated USC in 79. In 1983, the entrepreneur program, as it was called back then, reached out to me to join the advisory council of the entrepreneur program, which consisted of members of the business community, entrepreneurs in the Southern California area. And they were trying to beef up their alumni representation on there. And because I was an investment banker, they felt it tied in very nicely with entrepreneurship and, you know, the entrepreneurial ecosystem and support structure. Well, what that did, there was a huge career break for me. At that point, I'm still in law school at night. I hadn't become Sutro's top producer yet. And the first deal I did, the first year I became top producer was 84, the year I graduated law school. And it was also the year I ended up doing a deal with a graduate at the Greif Center who helped send me on my way in terms of closing transactions. And I ended up doing deals with some of the members of the advisory council as well. So I was rubbing elbows with other entrepreneurs. The entrepreneur program always played a major role. I founded Greif in company in 92. 1997, we're in our fifth year, so we're still a pretty young firm. We're now in our 31st year, but in context, so it's 25 years ago. The director of the entrepreneur program at the time, Tom O'Malley, approached me and he said, I've got this idea I'd like to talk to you about. There are entrepreneur programs at this point that were competing entrepreneur programs at other universities. And he said, if they're named, they're all named after entrepreneurs in the business community, but none of them have been named by one of their graduates. And what better way to signify the success of an entrepreneur program than to have it be named, endowed by one of its graduates. He offered me that opportunity, and I don't know whether I was the first person he talked to about it or the tenth person he talked to about it. He offered me that opportunity, and then when I went home that night, Renee, I discussed it with her. I then discussed it with one of my mentors, Bob Emmons, who's a marketing professor in the food industry program at the time, but CEO of Smart and Final. Got his viewpoint, spoke to Ann Erringer, one of the professors at the entrepreneur program, got her viewpoint. I remember Ann telling me, that this would be a life-changing event if I did it, and I would never, ever regret doing it. And that carried a lot of weight with me. And so Renee said, look, yes, half the money is mine, but you earned it. If you want to do this, you've got my full support. So I agreed to do it, made the gift in December of 97. been exactly what Ann said it would be. It has been a life-changing, transformative event because this gift was all about creating future generations 
of entrepreneurs. And I view entrepreneurs as alchemists. They came, they turn iron into gold through their force of will and their perseverance and their inspiration and their perspiration. These people are changing people's lives. They're coming up with better mousetraps. They're putting food on the table for all the families that work at those companies. A lot of them are very focused on ESG and sustainability and making the world a better place. To me, it's a gift that keeps on giving. And I think in my religion, we call that a mitzvah. It's doing a good deed. And I was fortunate enough to, at the age of 42, to be in a position where we could make that kind of a donation. And at the time, it tied the largest gift given by a person that young to USC. The other person who did that, who also made a $5 million donation at age 42, was George Lucas. Wow, Lloyd, this is an important baby of yours, and I can see why and what an impact to so many people. Speaking of babies, you've got three now adult children. I'm curious, how did you and Renee approach teaching your kids about money and their values around money? Because of the fact I focused on entrepreneurs and called Rife and Company, the Entrepreneurs Investment Bank, I had entirely entrepreneurs as our client. And they're a very demanding and challenging client. They're also very gratifying. And every time I do a deal for them, I look at those companies and the difference we made, and either for the entrepreneur or for the business itself. But what I saw, because of the fact they were closely held businesses, half of them were family businesses. And so I would see these family businesses where you had the first generation was, was the hard charging. Sometimes a family business, you're only doing the first generation might be two brothers or a husband and wife or two sisters or case they be. But a lot of times they're multi-generational family businesses, or at least they're first and second generation family businesses. And I began to notice a pattern that you'd have this founder, this hard-charging entrepreneur, who is a little too hard-charging. And as a result, the second generation would be a shadow of the founder and wouldn't have that independence, wouldn't have that self-reliance, grew up entitled, they were spoiled, whatever happened, they ended up not being able to stand on their own two feet. And I remember Renee and I spoke about this. There's a book I give out to some of my clients I have family businesses who are thinking about that. And it's called Children of Paradise by Dr. Lee Hausner. And it's a great book because it talks about the proper way to bring up children in wealthy families. And I remember reading that book and sharing it with Renee. And we were determined that our kids, even though they're going to live in a big house in a nice neighborhood, they were not going to be spoiled. They were going to not grow up with a sense of entitlement. We didn't buy them cars when they were in high school. We didn't buy them designer jeans or shirts or anything like that. Our focus was instilling them a love of education. And we've supported them in terms of paying for their college education. But otherwise, they're all on their own. And they have no sense that we're going to leave them a plug nickel in terms of inheritance. They know how charitable we are. It just felt it's important for them to have a sense of independence and self-reliance, seeing too much about what can happen if you don't do that. Parents obviously don't intend to do that, but that ends up being the outcome. And once that's occurred, it's really hard to unring that bell. Lloyd, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? You have to recall, of course, that I'm an investment banker. It's what I do for a living. So I'm always having money conversations. Investment bankers are in the money business. I'm dealing typically with hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, financing maybe tens of millions of dollars, but it's in the millions or the billions. And so they're all money conversations. I have money conversations every minute of every day, pretty much. That's, that may sound like an exaggeration, but as an investment banker, it's not. Because every transaction that I'm involved in, or involved in multiple at any one point in time, whether it's a corporate finance growth equity raise or debt financing, or more likely in our case, a merger and acquisition transaction, involves dealing with typically a wealthy clientele 
entrepreneurs who own and operate their own businesses or the founders of those businesses or somehow inherited those businesses or bought them. And when I formed Gryphon Company in, in the recessions, I wanted to have a, make a statement. I didn't feel like the world needed another investment bank, but I felt there was room for another good investment bank. The way you define a good investment bank is the results you generate for your clients. Are you getting them a higher price for their securities? Are you creating a premium for the business? And we pride ourselves on our work ethic here and on our negotiation expertise and our marketing savvy. We bring that wisdom, integrity, strength, and aggressiveness to our client engagements. Part of the culture ingrained in everybody here at Gryphon Company is that we treat our clients as if it was our securities we were selling and we want to leave any money on the table as a result of that mentality. So we're always going to bat for our client, trying to deliver the best result we can. So I think the next financial conversation I'll have will be probably within half an hour of you and I signing off and me picking up the phone and talking to one of my clients. Lloyd, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you sharing that with us and your stories and your wisdom. And you are an entrepreneur, but you're also a philanthropist with all your sharing of knowledge and giving back to your community. Thank you so much for joining us on Money Tales. Thank you, Lloyd. Tammy and Danny, pleasure was all mine. Thank you, ladies. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.